Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, we're talking about Excalibur number 49, Let There Be Dark, in which Brian gets bigger, Necrom gets closer, and Kurt confronts his own sexy skeleton. Excalibur number 49 was originally published in April 1992, and the creative team is Alan Davis on writing and pencils, Mark Farmer on inks, Linus Oliver on colors, Michael Heisler on letters, and Terry Cavanaugh on editing. Excalibur. Is it true? Take it quickly! Lots of cross-dimensional craziness to discuss this week, so let's get right into it, starting with your usual 616 adventurers. I am Dr. Annabelle Pard. I talk about sex and gender in comics and other sexy stuff all over the academic scene and the pop academic scene as well for websites like The Middle Spaces and Comic Book Herald and Shelf Dust and Comics XF. I'm the editor of the award-winning essay collection Super Sex, Sexuality, Fantasy, and the Superhero, and, as always, I am Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager. So, naturally, I want to spend the entire episode episode talking about the mechanics of teleporting, um, but thankfully <laughs> I have some colleagues to stop me from doing that, and they are. Mav, take it away. I would do that. I, I like teleporting. <laughs> yeah, it's like nice. stop me. Hello, my name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I'm an adjunct instructor of English literature, composition, and cultural studies, and a scholar who spent the better part of the last three decades studying 20th and 21st century popular culture, especially issues of race, class, gender, and sexuality, and mediums like comics, movies, TV, video games, sports, and music. I do that here and on another podcast called The Box Popcast. I also have a long and detailed history as a software designer, and a professional photographer, and a professional wrestler, and a comic book author, and an artist, but I am still merely a man, suddenly painfully aware of my own mortality. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to hear that. Sad, like legit. <laughs> yeah, over to you, Andrew. <laughs> Andrew, please remind our lovely listeners of your awesome stuff. Hey, I'm Dr. Andrew Deman. Um, I, I never give my bona fides. I never like list anything, but you can Google stuff. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm on faculty at St. Jerome's. I'm the project lead for the Claremont Run. Those are sort of the big things in my life. Um, if the world were indeed ending in less than an hour, I would 100% choose to hit up the kitchen with Megan and Cerise to make a snack. 
I don't know why you'd want to be anywhere else. And I hate Farron all the more for failing to realize the gift he was offered. <laughs> oh god, that's so accurate. Oh my goodness, that's perfect. <laughs> we are joined this week by a tremendously smart and funny scholar who we are so very lucky to have with us. The pod is electrified to welcome Nicole Frym. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. And we're excited to have you. I'll tell our listeners a little bit more about you. Nicole Frym is an associate professor at Southwestern Oregon Community College, where she teaches literature, creative writing, composition, and mythology. She's been involved with the Popular Culture Association since 1997, spending 16 or 17, everything is hazy with pandemic time, years as the area chair for <laughs> comics and comic art. She's currently also the VP for area chairs and programming and the default co-chair for a bunch of other areas. She's on the editorial board of the International Journal of Comic Art and has published articles on things like Wonder Woman, Justice League, Lois and Clark, and Supernatural. Basically, she's an all-around pop culture nerd and aspiring polymath. Now, Nicole, I've known you for a while, but in one of those ways where we've often just known each other <laughs> online and met in person right. like once, especially because of the pandemic. So let's get to know you a little better, starting with your comics origin story. How did you get into comics and how did you start studying comics? I want to hear about both of those things. Well, I remember reading comics when I was younger. In fact, I still have the earliest comic I remember, which is The Secret Society of Supervillains, issue number five. Oh, uh, with I believe it was Sinestro and Hawkman on the cover. Wow. Um, so I read comics for a while when I was younger. And then as I got older and I branched more into I discovered I'm like, oh, Stephen King. And I started reading that. And then in eighth grade, I read Shakespeare. And so I started reading Shakespeare. I mean, there's just so much good stuff out there to read. Right. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and then when I was in college, my roommate, junior year, her boyfriend was an artist and he liked to draw comics and he had left a copy of this comic in our room uh, that he said, oh, you should read this, told her she should read this comic. And so I was sitting around, I'm like, oh, comic, I haven't read one of those in a long time. And I picked it up and I read it and it happened to be The Crow by J.O. Barr. Oh. And I just sort of remembered. I'm like, oh, yeah, these things are pretty awesome. So I started reading them again. And then when I went to do my master's at University of Nevada, Las Vegas, there is a fabulous comic store in Las Vegas called Alternate Reality Comics run by Ralph Matthew and his wife at the time, girlfriend, Kate, was in the grad program with me. And so I just started reading more comics. And then I discovered the Popular Culture Association. I went, oh my God, I can write, I can write papers about this stuff. How <laughs> awesome is this? I think my first one for the Far West Popular Culture Conference was It's Not Easy Being Green. It was about the Hard Traveling Heroes series by Denny O'Neill. And the original story and then the comeback when it came back around and then Kyle and Connor had sort of a little hard traveling heroes-esque kind of adventure in, yeah, in yeah. their comic, you know, then, then you're just hooked, right? That's what pop culture is. It's like, ooh, here's a little taste. Why don't you come in? Isn't this fun? <laughs> and now, you know, 23 years later... <laughs> I don't know if that's popular culture or drugs, but okay. <laughs> Guy on the corner in a trench coat, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so since then, I've, like I said, I've just been, I keep 
reading them. I teach them on occasion. I've taught Mouse. I've taught V for Vendetta. I've taught Persepolis. I'm trying to get a comics class approved through Instructional Council, but if you've tried to get a class approved, <laughs> you know. Oh, I have. <laughs> Andrew knows. Yeah. Yeah. So... I don't know if I'm going to get it on the books for next year, but hopefully the year after. So anyway, long-winded. I apologize, but... No, that's exactly what I'm looking for. But mm -hmm. can I ask you, because, you know, you've been around the Pop Culture Association and various other academic spaces for a while now. What is your perspective on the way the academic studies, study of comics, or comic studies as we call it in academia, what's your perspective on how comic studies has sort of grown since you since you entered the field? I mean, uh, we've obviously seen a huge growth in the mm -hmm. field. I mean, have you observed that as well? Oh, absolutely. The first time I was chair, I took over in, my first one was 2004. I think we had eight or nine panels. Around eight or nine panels was, I think, about average for the for then and for the few previous years. But with Hollywood discovering comics <laughs> again, it has grown exponentially. I mean, I did a roundtable on film adaptations of comics because that's one of my sort of areas that I'm I'm really into. And that was in San Diego. I want to say it was 2005 or 2006. And there were more films based on comics in like 99 to 2005 than there had been in the previous 50 years. And of course, it's just sort of exploded since then. Although the funny thing is, is that of course, as this has grown, because now usually our area, we're one of the largest areas at pop culture, where I think we're probably in like maybe top five, some years top 10, but that's out of, you know, 120 odd areas. We get a lot of people, however, who are amazed that they have discovered comics. They're not aware that we've had comic scholarship going on for decades and the best ones come in and are thrilled to find this out and want to participate and then we have the occasional person who wants to come do their their little side thing on here let me talk to you about this comic that I found and then they never come back. <laughs> uh, thankfully, have you heard the good news about Watchmen? <laughs> oh my god for for a good for a good decade i had at least one if not two papers on watchmen every year yeah i know <laughs> <laughs> and although one time i had someone who i rarely turn down an abstract sometimes i will give them a suggestion and this person wanted to cover the social cultural and political backgrounds of comics from 1938 to present. Huh. Wow. I mean, basically. What are they going to do for the other 14 minutes? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I, basically what he wanted to do was sum up comic studies, like not, and, and sum up here's comics. And I wrote him <laughs> and I said, you know, you're going to have a very informed audience. You might consider just focusing on a decade. And this person did not listen to me. And this person showed up and it was literally, okay, here's the golden age. Here's the comics that were published in the golden age. Here's the silver age. And finally, we got to the point, and he, I felt so sorry for him later because he literally asked, Has anyone heard of Mouse? Oh, no. Oh, I feel and, like. And I just, yeah. And I, and I felt so bad for him, but it was like, <laughs> dude, read the room, man. <laughs> Half the people in here publish books on comics. I mean, <laughs> come on. So, at any rate, it has changed a lot, although I think the other thing, too, is that I find people who say, oh, yeah, I love reading comics. The movies, are, I love all the Marvel movies. 
Yeah, yeah. And that's not exactly the same thing. (laughs) I think it's, I actually do think it's been good for the area. And I think that the MCU and the up, and hopefully the upcoming Sandman, these things are helping, I think, bring comic studies out of the shadows. Sort of like how film studies used to be the, you know, the unwanted family member. And then it kind of got shifted to comics. No one really wants to talk about this relation, but I think, (laughs) I think we're getting, we are getting a little bit more traction. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense with my experience. And I mean, I'll, I'll say that it's a push and pull because as much as you don't want to gatekeep about anything having to do with fandom, obviously, right. You know, everybody who wants to be a fan is a fan. Like let's open all the doors. There is a frustration when you're sort of a scholar in these areas, when I have experienced that as well. There's a presumption that comic studies doesn't exist. So you sometimes getting people, get people coming into that space and assuming they're starting from zero because it isn't a field. And that can be very frustrating for those of us that have been working very hard in this field for some time. And this is easily Googleable and kind of the, (laughs) the presumption that we haven't been doing that work is, is it's insulting. Let's just say it bluntly. And and like I said, the best people, they realize that that's there and they go, great, I'm going to get into this. So, you know, they they join the conversation. So. Yeah, for sure, for sure. But then again, it's, you know, I hate to stereotype a little, but I mean, I've as a as a woman who reads comics, I've experienced this plenty when you walk into a comic book store and they look at me and say, "Are you looking for something for your boyfriend?" <laughs> oh yeah. Although now I'm older, so now it's like for your son or your nephew. <laughs> Oh, God. Yeah. And usually then I pull out some random specific title and say, you know, something like, no, actually, I need a copy of, you know, James Robinson's run on Starman. I need issue 39. Do you have that? (laughs) You know, just to shut them up. So (laughs) CBG grade 9.3 or better, please. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I had one of those one time when I was just sort of just getting into buying weekly comics. So it was hard to kind of stand up for myself back then. It was a long time ago. And I went into my local comic book store. And as soon as I walked into the in the store, the guy points at me and goes, you're here for the new Buffy comic, right? And I was like, it's not that this is not like an Andy Buffy thing or whatever, you know, but I was just like, no, that's not what I was here for. And the type passed me that way. And then I was just like, no, I'm here to buy the latest issue of Namor. That's what I'm buying. (laughs) It was like a cover in which I don't think it was the cover, but I I'm pretty sure this was the issue. It was a very like I mean a lot of Namor series are pretty violent, and I'm pretty Mm -hmm. sure the comic like featured him stabbing someone through the heart with like an American flag trident. (laughs) It's like that's what I'm here to buy. Okay. Awesome. It's like very proud of myself. Um. Anyway, let's talk a little bit about Excalibur. Um. I know that you've read the series before, Nicole. Can I ask mm-hmm. you a little bit about your memories of the series or the experiences that you might have had with it? If I'm being completely honest, they're very hazy because I did read them long ago. No problem. So I was mostly excited because I I love Alan Davis. So mm. I thought I was sort of excited. Okay, yeah, I'll go back and look at these again. <laughs> if you hadn't looked at them in a long time you go back and you start looking at alan davis and you're like wow what what was going on with this tech net stuff yeah <laughs> so i i like the x-men and i do like kurt not as much as you like kurt but i i don't think anybody likes <laughs> no as much as you like kurt. everyone is welcome at the church of nightcaller nicole <laughs> uh so 
I had read some of this series, you know, back in the nineties and I, I didn't remember, I didn't remember the specifics. I remembered liking it. And I remembered liking Alan Davis, like, like when he came on. So that's why I thought, yeah, this will be fun. And so when I've, I've been looking them over and it was, yep, I, these were fun and weird. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this this one especially with the the what is it the you know blurring between the realities so absolutely yeah let's get into that and i'll come back to your first impressions after we do a little little you know, issue summary so i know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod but as always let's start preparing for the battle with a plot summary excalibur 49 opens in london where a group of jackbooted special operatives from fi6 are storming a warehouse as brigadier inky blot and micromax look on inside they find necrom necrom kills everyone the whole fi6 team along with inky but not micromax who escapes by rapidly and dramatically decreasing his size. Bristling with power, Necrom heads for the Excalibur lighthouse. At the lighthouse, Rachel feels the deaths of the FI6 agents and warns the team Necrom is coming. Farron, who keeps being likable, accuses Rachel of causing their deaths by not <laughs> surrendering the Phoenix Force. Kitty gives Farron the business while Kurt tries to defuse the situation until suddenly they're interrupted by cross-dimensional analogs battling Kang. The analogs quickly blip away and everyone gets back to business. Alistair investigating Widget with Kylan standing guard while Brian, Kurt, Rachel, and Kitty investigate the Necrom situation and Megan, Cerise, and Farron go to the kitchen to find the would-be Phoenix aid juice box. A bunch of investigating of anomalies proceeds apace with numerous strange disruptions along the way, which seem to get more and more frequent the closer Necrom gets. Megan and Cerise find themselves confronted by a bloodthirsty chef in a Captain Britain costume. Kurt accidentally teleports himself to another dimension where the entire team is dead. Alistair briefly becomes many Alistairs, and Brian seems to be getting bigger. He's hitting his head on door frames, knocking stuff over, and accidentally destroying computer consoles. Moments before Necrom arrives, his body swells to Hulk-like proportions, but he's not in pain, telling Megan he feels good and supercharged. Finally, Necrom appears in green flames and says he'll spare the Earth if Rachel releases the Phoenix. Feels like we've heard that one before. Elsewhere in Roma's Citadel on Otherworld, Roma and Saturnine watch as alternate realities converge on Earth-616. Roma can't discern the purpose until a voice tells her she was told what she needed to know. Merlin, who everyone thought was dead, has returned. Dum-dum-dum. So, a lot of setup this issue, but as setup issues go, I think it's pretty delightful one but let's see what we all made of it starting with our honored guest nicole what particularly stood out to you about rereading this comic like i said the shifting realities part is the thing that i like that he mm. that davis sort of got to use that as you know moments to break the tension sort of comedy i mean seriously <laughs> hulkish yeah. buns i mean <laughs> That stood out to me too, Nicole. <laughs> <laughs> but it, then it also, there's a lot going on in this issue. You you mentioned, you know, sort of talking about things like the team dynamic or things like that. I guess one of the things that stuck out to me was how the idea of trust keeps coming up over and over. Oh, yeah. Okay. Issue. So, but I know we're going to get into like specifics. So. Ooh, I like that as a theme. I was struggling to pick a theme, but that's a pretty good one. I like that a lot because everyone's trust is kind of getting eroded as they're wondering about all these mysterious things. That is part of the tension of this issue that I totally hadn't thought about. Well, and it, especially with the shifting, the shifting reality sort of echoing the idea of trust, sort of this, the, your shift, like shifting allegiances and yeah. who can we trust and who are we? Because with all of these mm -hmm. analogs kind of happening and converging into yeah. the space. Oh, I love that, Nicole. Yeah, I want to talk about that more. Uh, let's okay. do some other first impressions, um, though. First, uh, Andrew, I know you had thoughts about kind of some of those elements of tension as well. So maybe I'll, I'll give you a chance to say your piece. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, we've talked about it before. Alan Davis is still kind of finding his footing as a writer. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things that I've complained about before was um, pacing. And I think we've all actually mentioned something about it, um, structure or something related to pacing throughout our, our episodes. But I, I think this one, he's doing a, a tremendous job of creating buildup and creating tension and making Necrom's arrival mean something. Uh, and, and I don't know, doing that thing that Marvel does too often, but to varying degrees of success of, you know, this is the world altering stakes book. Uh, and everything in the Marvel Universe depends on this. I think Davis is doing great work in that here because it's a setup issue, right? But it's not dull. Uh, That tension is like, for lack of a better term, kind of delicious. You enjoy, even though the payoff isn't coming until issue number 50. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Does that make, how about you, Mav? How'd you feel about this one? Same thing. I love this book. Nothing happened. This is literally, (laughs) this is is, um, narratively, if you went from 48 to 50, you'd be fine but you shouldn't because this is great this is like a really really good story where you just learn stuff about people like the story doesn't i guess it progresses in that merlin shows up but it's only for one panel you'd have figured it out like i I think (laughs) i think for the most part like nothing of consequence happens it's all just i think last issue you know i i made i made the comment that you know it's been 30 years and i'm still not exactly sure what cerise does (laughs) (laughs) um and, and i'm still not but like I feel like I understand stuff about relationships here. I feel like I understand where Kylan is. I feel like I understand where Cerise is. I feel like I understand where Farron is. I understand how people are relating to each other in the course of this story. And you need to take a break. It's the first real break that Davis has taken since he, since he took over. So you need to take that break and just do some establishment. And again, I, I've said before, my all-time favorite superhero television show is episode four of The Defenders, where they all sit around and just have, have dinner at a Chinese restaurant. That's yeah, what yeah. I want here, and that's what we get here. So Yeah, I mean, it's in the domestic space. They don't do a lot of domestic things, but I think no. confining them to that space is why we get sort of, it feels very effective in terms of the tension, but it's also very effective in terms of character building to sort of trap them in this space, right? I think not only are they trapped there, I like... And here you go. I, I, I'm going to transition you to talking about Nightcrawler a little bit here. I like the character building of how they even came to do this. There is a moment where Kurt says, here's the plan. We're all going to split up. Megan takes Cerise and Farron to have a sandwich and everybody else come with me so that we can talk about them behind their back. Like, <laughs> like, like he's like the plan. There's no need for a plan. Like, it's not like, it's not like a, Hey, you guys go after the mass device and we'll go after the weather dominator. No, this is literally like, let's split up so that I can have a conversation about people that I don't want to hear it so that the plot such that it is can happen. It is so forced. And he doesn't even tr- like, I don't, and I don't mean like forced, like in a negative way, he is just splitting them up so that he can talk about them. And I think it's a good character building moment for kurt that he's aware of like the stupidity of oh well i suggest we split up I'm like why no the world's about to end why would you split up now i agree that you know with with andrew that you know hanging out with megan farron got the better part of the deal and he's kind of stupid yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know but i like how um i i like how they split up just so that they could have a conversation he was essentially saying new people go away megan please go babysit <laughs> <laughs> i mean that makes sense in terms of on a narrative level because he mostly probably wants to get Farron out of the way. Yes. <laughs> so 
there's that. But I also like, that's part of the realism of this issue, I think, though. Because it's like, yeah, the world's ending, but we still need snacks. Like, let's go get some snacks. (laughs) (laughs) I love that in terms of bringing us into that domestic stage, which is something we've talked about so many times on this podcast. But I don't know. I mean, that's also a wonderful current thing to me, though, that, you know, he's being so rational at the end of the world. And he's not always a totally rational character, but we see him kind of coming into this thoughtful kind of leadership role that he's gonna have in the book kind of moving forward at least in the davis era and i find that really interesting in this issue we get a lot of thought bubbles of kurt in this issue which we've talked in the past about him not having a lot of thought bubbles or davis not using a lot of thought bubbles in general and of course thought bubbles were getting less popular in this era anyway but he gets a lot of them here and his perspective gets prioritized in some ways that i find interesting because we don't see brian thinking about his transformation but we do see kurt thinking about the situation like his sort of psychology is the one that seems mm-hmm. to get prioritized here like, I'm, like am i doing nightcrawler goggles on this issue or did you feel that as well, well? <laughs> he's the only one we get a thought bubble for mm-hmm. micro max does but we but we like to pretend yeah, that he that's doesn't true. exist that's yeah. true <laughs> oh. oh, okay. yeah, don't worry about it it's fine it's not worth it's not it's not even worth flipping back to find the page we're gonna talk about him a little bit but like but yeah i don't know i mean you notice that as well though nicole that he gets thought bubbles where other characters don't i yes i mean and he was evaluating the team you know he's sort of looking at i'm the team leader and how is my team doing Mm -hmm. right so i mean that's sort of how i how i took it but i don't i don't recall perhaps micromax did have one and i just blocked it out because i was channeling the (laughs) unconscious anti-micro it's page seven it's it's not important seriously it doesn't matter instead of antimicrobial we have antimicromax i do have one complaint about kurt's logic of course it's petty but like there's the one scene where he's talking to phoenix and phoenix is like i'll release the phoenix force and he says no that's what necrom wants and i'm like okay good you've explained it that makes sense we can move on and then he says and besides you're so close to getting your memories back and i'm like well no the world's ending so (laughs) she doesn't get her memories if that happens that's not a good reason and you already gave me a good reason it's what comedy writers call a hat on a hat i mean it could be one of those things where you're sort of reminding the readers of kind of what's been going on with racial yeah, I'm almost i'm right? almost willing to forgive it on that level it's an awkward bit of it i mean it, it's the only reason he says it is for exposition yeah. because they have not mentioned that, that rachel is dealing with this you know artificial memory problem that davis yeah. invented <laughs> they've not mentioned it yet <laughs> this this issue and like that was just getting it out of the way so i, I you know i get it but it is a little awkward and artificial that is weird yeah but I, I definitely like that thing that nicole mentioned about kurt being the one that's sort of observing the interpersonal dynamics in the team because i think that's what i'm getting at you know like on page 16 we get him reflecting on the team you know brian fears kitty is right rachel is torn confused their confidence is being eroded by self-doubt is this more manipulation by our mysterious adversaries which is a little ridiculous bit of dialogue as well but at the same time to see him sort of reflecting on the interpersonal dynamics and thinking about how he's going to manage that and that's part of like i'm going to send some people to the kitchen and send these other people over here in part to diffuse the situation because he knows he has to get rachel and necrom in separate places right that that is a bit of dialogue that is clearly you know davis learned to write comics by reading chris claremont comics (laughs) (laughs) it's it's very much an impression you know um let me dwell on my own personal angst right here for a moment (laughs) and and 
It is odd. I, I just checked just because, you know, before anybody writes this, I just went through and checked. Kurt doesn't have any other thought bubbles. It's just those three. It yeah. seems like he does because yeah. the thought bubble is dying in comics and starting on page 19, he's alone and he's just talking out loud to himself. That's true. That's true. It's an odd choice, but he, but he, he doesn't actually think again. He's like, oh, I'm alone so I can speak out loud, which mm-hmm. is just where comics are going in the 90s. Yeah, that's that in yellow and yellow caption boxes. He's classically trained. It was a soliloquy. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. And, and I, I mean, it's an odd tension because I think Davis, you know, like us, grew up reading Chris Claremont and probably Stan Lee comics, and he's trying to do that thing, even though to an extent the industry is sort of moving away narratively from that style. Basically, when he's coming to when he's coming to life as a writer. He's very much in this transitional phase, and I think we are, I think we are seeing that on the page. We are seeing a transitional mm-hmm. writer, you know, embody the transitional phase of where comics were. I think we're seeing transition for for Kurt as well. I mean, we've yes. talked before about his emotional intelligence being his defining characteristic. Mm-hmm. Here we're seeing him add a tactical component to it, mm-hmm. uh, and thus sort of you know, achieving ultimate leadership. Right? He's taking his existing skill and he's bringing a little bit of like Cyclops to it. And I don't think we've seen that before, and I think that's where you really get the sense that he's the leader of Excalibur right now unquestionably yeah because i feel like within that failed leadership stint of the x-men his thought bubble would be all about how people were thinking about him in that moment yeah (laughs) Yeah. but like he wouldn't be thinking about what other people are doing he'd just be so afraid of personally screwing up but we see none of that kind of going on here with him which is interesting Mm -hmm. i kind of want to back up a little bit actually and go back to the opening scene of the comic and actually talk about micromax a little bit because (laughs) i I actually do have a few thoughts about it and this is a really compelling and horrific opening scene so we should talk about it a little bit before we get back to the reality warping stuff and talk about some of those more delightful cross-dimensional things so i mean i was wondering nicole about your thoughts about this opening scene like how is this setting up what this comic will be and how is it kind of setting up the texture of this comic to have this horrific opening scene and particularly opening with this scene of kind of scary police violence that we have here i was interested if you had thoughts about the themes here this is one of those things right like we have the the very first thing right that we see is the like you said the military the tactical the guns and yet they're called mediators which is just sort of okay you're not really mediating right you're just gonna mow things down and the fact that they are after you know it's some random target so i mean it's sort of going heavy into the thuggishness of we don't know what we're after but we're going to go after it right i I mean i don't know i mean to me i'm looking at this and like yeah they could kill it pretty easily (laughs) the thing that's that struck me when i looked at it is the the first image where we saw necrom and then he's like sucking the the life force out of the guy i was reminded of the buffy episode hush with the gentleman Mm. or these sort of skeletal ball you know skeletal figures that are bald and and draw the breath out of you right because they've taken the voice that's just completely irrelevant and really have much point to it but um (laughs) (laughs) but i also i mean things like it's sort of the stereotypicalness of you have the thuggish people who don't really know what they're doing right because it is a trap and i could tell it was a trap because (laughs) oh the you know my esp people suddenly got this you know he what was it like lowered his you know suddenly got a fix on him and i'm like duh are you not thinking (laughs) trap 
right? Yeah. That, that it always seems like, are they trying to look stupid? Is this, or is this like the murder mystery kind of thing where the reader wants to feel smart because we figured it out? Yeah. 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 It's, it's a striking, the sort of the goriness too of how he, of how he kills the people is a nice sort of counterpoint to then later, you know, stuff like <laughs> you've got them in the kitchen and arguing about how is this sausage made from, oh, you know, yeah. how is this meat? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So magneto i love that <laughs> me too <laughs> well yeah i mean it's just i was struck by what a confrontational image it is to open this comic with you know especially sort of in a british context with these like futuristic automatic weapons and everything and it seems very deliberate to highlight these individuals as being you know overpowered and thuggish and everything yeah. and i was sort of wondering about what it's doing for making micromax actually a little bit more sympathetic because we see him caught up in this web in which he's manipulated as well and i did find Find myself mm-hmm. feeling sympathy for him because these are tropes, but tropes are effective, right? We recognize <laughs> them and we kind of know how we're supposed to feel about it when we see these tropes and we know that we're not supposed to be with these versions of the Secret Service slash cops, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. a good way to establish empathy, being the one guy who says, don't go in there. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that's, as you said, it's it's iconic, he, but it works. He also got yelled at. He got yelled yeah. at for, <laughs> yeah. for, 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 wanting, uh, for wanting to do the inky at the beginning. It's like, oh no, you're an idiot. So, we're leaving this to professionals and like well and he's, he's like well i am the only superhero here oh sure but <laughs> i mean the joke i don't hate micromax that the joke is we haven't had any reason to talk about him since he was introduced it's been like six issues and he's really done nothing of any consequence other than sort of in the way while other more interesting stuff was happening in every issue he's appeared in so yeah. so this is suddenly like a hey you've got something relevant to do and we need to feel bad for you and since you were invented we've given no one any reason to care about you you know davis needs the reader to be to feel relieved that micromax escapes being murdered when inky and everybody else got killed so he doesn't have time to go back and rewrite the previous six issues let's just place him in a situation where we'll pretend that you cared about him all along like oh someone's being mean to him and he's about to get killed and he and he he gets hurt he gets a little boo-boo when he uses his powers too fast (laughs) you know like like what like you are being mean to him (laughs) yeah but i mean like but i mean only because does it matter right like i mean like i do feel bad i do have the sympathy but it's entirely based on story trope in this issue and not anything that's ever happened to micromax up until this point there's no his characterization is meaningless up up until here at the same time i mean you do feel for him because you know he's getting dressed down that you know you screwed this thing up and somebody else you know did it and he's like with the aid of excalibur which is an entire team Team, not just me and the guy's like yeah fine distinction that is for the people who have the money yeah right mm. oh and can i just take a moment to say how much i love orpington Smythe <laughs> as a name i mean it's just absurd but delightful i like inky blot <laughs> That's good yeah, too. Yeah, me too, actually. Yeah, I couldn't believe we just dispose of Inky in this issue. I thought he was going to kind of be a longer-term protagonist, but no, he's gone. Yeah. I mean, yeah, no, I don't really care that much. But it's true, it's true. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's part of the lack of sympathy, too. I mean, that Inky explicitly brings up the reason they're doing this raid is because they want to make sure that they get the funding instead of RCX getting the funding. So that's a real red flag in terms of sympathy for this group of people. Yeah, I do want to pick the scene one more time because that's what i'm doing apparently in this episode but um we've talked before we had a long discussion and i, I don't know if i was alone on this but i was we, we discussed it a little bit um there's t- 
times where I think Alan Davis writes more than he should mm. because like the scene is just stunning and dark and the, the layouts are amazing and Davis doesn't always experiment that much with his layouts um, but when he does it's really kind of cool and then when we get Necrom he starts spouting off like Stan Lee's Doctor Doom he's doing this Silver Age I'm going to absorb all your power and then take over the world stuff and I, I felt a little diminished by that because again I feel like it would have been better silent that Necrom was so imposing the way you'd constructed the scene um, that I, I didn't I didn't need his his monologuing. Yeah, I think that's fair because the obvious comparison would be the Werewolves of London story where we see similar kind of, you know, threatening alien creatures absorbing the life force of people. And there's some visual callbacks to that as well. But I felt like that scene was a little bit more like the Werewolf scene was a little bit more horrifying because of the alienness and sort of the Werewolves not giving these types of speeches I think was part of that for me mm -hmm. but I think that that's fair I mean I was interested in the Micromax powers thing because it is a little mm. thing and it is based on tropes but when he has the later scene where he says the thing of he's still learning to control his powers and he passed out when he shrank too small I mean that is so tropey but that gets you because you're like oh suddenly I understand that he's <laughs> this young guy who's just struggling to be taken seriously and that's where a lot of his obnoxious mm -hmm. arrogance is coming from and that's <laughs> despite being super tropey a powerful bit of characterization that definitely makes me feel more it makes me way more interested in his powers because the mm. fact that he's still learning to control them and he's still not sure of the limits of them it's like that gets my superhero brain going and i'm like oh that's interesting let's talk about that more yeah it's it's just that like this could have been said at any point in the last six issues right you're, you're sort of predisposed to not care about him because nothing has come of him up until this point mm -hmm. and now we're trying to shoehorn in, you know, death, which the, the storyline needs it. I know it seems like I'm complaining. I'm not. It's just weird. It's, it is a weird shortcut that, like, I would not have thought twice about if it, you know, if I weren't doing a podcast where I have to overanalyze everything every week. I don't remember it ever being um, a big thing before this read through for me. It's like, oh, I guess we're going to have to start caring about Micromax. He, he does. <laughs> He doesn't appear to be going away. Okay. We're going to overanalyze. are now. <laughs> overanalyze everything. Can we take a moment to overanalyze sort of the whole a homosexual subtext that we got going on with Micromax and Necrom? <laughs> Please and go on, Nicole. your life force. <laughs> I hope it's as large as your giant frame. And oh no, don't let him touch me. I mean... Okay, maybe I was the only person who saw that. No, no, I mean, it is it, it is a naked green man who's saying these things, yes. <laughs> yeah, and Necrom is naked. I mean, we get, like, his naked butt on the page that you're talking about. And he's just very excited about getting his hands on this big guy. So, you know, just saying. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's often an element of that to when any character gets threatened. And I think we often don't think about it in terms of male characters, because we just have that thing where like, oh, sexual assault or rape is a thing that happens to female characters and not male characters. So I think there's a thing where a lot of us don't always think about that context when it's two male characters or male presenting characters. However, we might think about Necrom because he's sort of an alien character, so whatever. But yeah, I, like, I definitely think you're right there, Nicole, that there's almost a sexual threat going on here, and especially the way kind of he protects his body and becomes very vulnerable anyway apparently mostly <laughs> me who saw that i guess but you know I mean, I don't think there's any other way to look at it. He's naked, and he's and he's explicitly naked. He's not genitalist because they're doing the. Yeah. We've talked about that on this show before. 
this show before, they're doing the thing where the artwork is explicitly and very carefully hiding his penis because they can't draw it, as opposed to, you know, he is not Ken Doss moved. We are going out of our way to put a gun where his penis is to put a discreet shadow here to make sure his butt's facing us. So it is, they want you to know that this is a naked green man wandering around, you know, vampiring people. Well, I appreciate it. Cause then we get, you know, we can get the broke back pose, you know, from, from a man for a change, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah. And I mean, in the issue where, uh, I think it was Excalibur 45, perhaps the one where Necrom throws off of his, his robe for the first time and like goes goes after them. It's very explicit that he was wearing clothes and then takes off his clothes when he's making his power moves. So I mean, we get his nakedness sort of emphasized back then as well. So this has been a through line for Necrom that okay. the nakedness mm-hmm. is part of his threat for sure. No, I'm always happy to talk about that kind of stuff, Nicole. <laughs> oh, and he's naked and old, you know. So that yeah. like that's a like I don't think he's an alien. I, he's from another dimension, but I think he's just a human wizard kind of man i don't think we're supposed to think of him in like a scrawl or anything i think he's human just you know seething with power and old yeah and i mean that's all of those kind of things i mean we've talked on the pod before about sort of redeemable and irredeemable monsters and one of the ways that a character becomes sort of presented as an irredeemable monster is combining too many of the wrong types of hybridities so the fact that he's sort of sexy and a sexual threat and old that's an irredeemable hybridity because and again when i say we I'm saying, you know, generically, we don't think about those things as being able to coexist, right? So when you have things that aren't supposed to coexist, coexisting, that's what tends to make someone an irredeemable monster versus a redeemable monster. Whereas Mm -hmm. a character that combines those things more seamlessly gets to be more of a redeemable monster. It's kind of complicated, but actually, I feel like I kind of did that remarkably succinct. I could talk about that for an hour. And I was like, I was, I'm like underselling myself. That was a pretty good explanation. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> All right, as long as I introduced interesting superpowers and their mechanics, can we talk about the teleporting thing like a little sure. bit? <laughs> okay. Okay, so I mean, I was really interested in this because we see Kurt thinking about how his powers work. And this is really interesting because there remain a lot of questions about how his powers work that never kind of get dealt with. And Davis is going to try to deal with it a little bit in some later issues of Excalibur with some attempts at making canon that didn't necessarily stick. But the thing that particularly interests me about this little scene with Kurt where he teleports to the wrong dimension is trying to think about what happened is that he has this contemplation about what his senses are like as a teleporter, which is not Mm -hmm. something that had been introduced prior to this point. Yeah, sort of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> not not in the story. It is referenced by Mark Grinwald and, and Peter Sanderson okay, okay. In, his, <laughs> in his entry for the official handbook to the Marvel Universe. So, uh, I mean, I remember reading it, which, which by the way, is issue num- number nine, which, <laughs> I, which I have helpfully pulled and we can forward to page 31. Where, <laughs> so, well, I'll where, ask you, Matt, how, how do they talk about it there? Like, I mean, do they talk about like the North-South thing or what kind um, of are the limits of his powers the, described? That, I believe, is sort of Davis massaging the science that Sanderson and Grunwald tried to do, which is they very much argue he does the thing where he shunts to 
another uh, another space and moves yeah. through a side space a fourth fourth dimensionally and re-enters in the in our space so he is physically traversing distance it's why he can't teleport to the ground because he will hurt himself it, um that was always a now that that has been broken a couple times since then but at this point in marvel continuity it, it was very explicit that if Kurt is in the air and he teleports downward, gravity matters. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah because he'll, mate- and, he'll, mate- he'll materialize at the same speed that he's moving, and, um, and... or even faster, according to Grunwald, because he uh. ha- because he doesn't not fall; he just falls in the other space. So it's very much okay. Um, the longer the distance over which Nightcrawler teleports himself, the harder and more exhausting it is for him to make the teleportational jump, and it's easier for him to teleport between north and south along Earth's magnetic lines of force than it is for him to teleport between east and west against them under optimal conditions nightcrawler teleporting only himself and his costume nightcrawler can displace himself a distance of about two miles east west and up up and up to three miles north south making a vertical teleportation upwards is difficult and dangerous nightcrawler has made a vertical teleportational jump of two miles by pushing himself to the physical limits and he goes on and on it is a complex system that was clearly researched by drew and sanderson this is like their thing because given our understanding of how relativity works and Einstein's theories of what possible teleportation would look like it's pretty good the north south thing versus east west i had not seen anywhere other than the official handbook until it was mentioned here um that was just sort of a thing that he's theorizing so if nightcrawler can sense the poles to go further which is what Gru says then that would be what davis is building on here i guess it's more though yeah we'd had the poles thing and the vertical teleport thing and everything brought up earlier i wrote a whole thing about teleporting and on Uncanny 145, in which Kurt okay. thinks about his powers there as well, which was another thing that I found particularly interesting about that issue. And of course, that's a Cochrane issue, and Cochrane was obsessed with Kurt, so he wanted to talk about yeah. it. But here, like having him discuss having a sense of locatedness related to yeah. his power, I found really interesting because, I mean, what's his sense of space as a teleporter? He must, in a sense, have maps or locations in his mind because he can teleport to places he's been before as long as he's seen the location before yeah so he must have some kind of unconscious like it's expanded upon a bit in the game which is not canon but their argument is essentially it is like a mapping out thing he can teleport to spaces that he has been so long as he's he knows how to get there Mm -hmm. so you can't you can't blindfold kurt take him to a place and have him hang out then blindfold him and take him back and expect him to find his way back. It is very much a knowing where I'm going um, Mm -hmm. or being able to see where I'm going was the argument that the game makes. And I've never seen anything in the comics to dispute that. Mm -hmm. But it is a weird, uh, like he's right or davis is right in that there must be some sort of sense in order to make that make place and to call it smell i mean i guess why not (laughs) you know i I don't know like he does seem to have some sort of sense in order to recognize how that's done there are other teleporters in the marvel universe who have much more cognizant means of teleportation like Ilyana literally just stops in limbo and looks to see where she's going to go and then she goes there like there's lots of places where you see Ilyana do her teleportation and then just hang out till she's ready to go back you know yeah well I'm very attached to kind of the limits of Kurt's teleportation though because it has to do with him being a thoughtful character I mean again one of the things that I particularly liked about that uncanny 145 issue is like having to see him think through the limits and possibilities of his superpowers and I really don't like Mm -hmm. it when 
like lately there's kind of been a retcon of his powers where he just has no limits on his teleporting anymore and it's a maybe dumb thing to nitpick about but i hate it so much because <laughs> him having the limits of his power that's such a tropey iconic thing with him you know having the thing of we need to get the five of us over to this place and it's three miles can you do it kurt and he's like i don't know we might all die i have to have <laughs> total like faith in this and we have to go and i'm probably gonna pass out and maybe die once we get there and that's a wonderful like bit of character intention woven into Kurt's powers mm -hmm. and to lose that I hate it I hate it so much and yeah so anytime that I see him sort of thinking through the mechanics of his powers that really fascinates me and especially in the sense that this is a character that I identify with too so having him think about his physical relation to space and his perception of his body and his powers that's a really powerful kind of identificatory thing because being mm -hmm. able to think about what it would feel like to be able to teleport what would it feel like to just be sitting there and know that I could just with a thought disappear from here and go over there i was gonna say there's a power creep there too that, that that's kind of interesting the idea that he could teleport across dimensions mm -hmm. yeah um, like that's yeah. that's sowing the seeds for cross time caper part two mm -hmm. in my mind as soon as he does that yeah um well i mean and there's the out that you know can he do that or is it because of necrom and widget and proximity and like, yeah the location of the lighthouse yes. that said i like the normalization that he has while thinking about it so anna you're just talking about like you like that he's he's considering it but what he's considering is something so natural to him it would be as though one of us were like well let me think how do i actually walk you know, know. like uh, or even things that i don't do naturally like okay, okay i know how to drive a car but i don't think about driving a car when i when I do it or riding a bicycle, it's just, I mean, I did at one point when I was 16 or when I was, you know, six, when I learned to ride a bike or whatever, like at one point I was actively thinking about what I was doing, but now it's just sort of, it is so natural as to, you know, I get in my car, I turn the key, I press the pedal and it goes, <laughs> you know, like there, there's so much that doesn't like, isn't an active thing. Whereas if I had to like, sort of, if I were trying to do a stunt of some kind, which is what he's trying to do, if I had to like deconstruct, what does it mean to drive my car? Because I want to, I don't know, jump over a gorge or something, you know, I don't, like, I, like I'd have to, it, it would be weird to break it down. And yeah. like, I like, and I imagine it would, it would work something like this. Oh, anyway, I just love it. I could talk about it more, but let's let's talk about some other stuff, um, including some of the other interpersonal dynamics here. And I'll come back to you, Nicole. There's a lot of other sort of interpersonal moments in this comic that are really interesting. And I wanted to give you a chance to highlight any favorite ones you might have had for us to talk about a little bit more. Were there other character interactions in this issue or even any of the particular cross-dimensional intrusions that you, that you found particularly interesting that you'd like to give more of a spotlight to? Well... Of course, the the first one with Kang, right? I mean, yeah. Um, and the giant foot coming down. I gotta say, I did I did really like that panel right next to right next to the the thud when Kurt is saying we could be attacked at any moment because we actually get you, you, we get his pupil. Oh, I know it's so creepy. <laughs> I mean, you, whenever I think of him, I always think of it as just, you know, a yellow face, right, for his eye. But we actually get a pupil there. I, lo I love that. And then, of course, I already commented on the <laughs> toast mine hulkish buns. Um, <laughs> but also then little things like when we have, you know, they just, they're coming through the magneto <laughs> <laughs> or um, the punish 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 sore punish sore you know that, that our 
are just, they crack me up. I mean, it, it's Alan Davis's humor. But but yeah, like I said, the thing I was noticing was sort of the question, the questions about trust, right? Who do we trust? Do we trust that Roma actually, you know, fixed the spell on, uh, you know, so that it's not, it's not something left over from that, right? I, I trust Roma. I'm sure she kept her promise. Why? Why do, do you? <laughs> or sort of the idea of, you know, when they're talking about the confidence is being eroded by self-doubt, that relates to trusting yourself, right? But even something as simple as like when Kurt, you know, you point out how Kurt sort of splits the team up, you guys go do this, you know, and some of them do. I mean, they trust Kurt. And Kurt's like, we need to, you know, we need to take this outside. They're building trust in Kurt, but at the same time, I mean, the trust in the team is, I mean, I don't want to say it's not there. I think it's there more so than in, in other issues, but these sort of fracturing realities around them are sort of highlighting how these in, the individuals are struggling too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love that you know, because I mean, having them in a confined space too works so well for that sort of trust theme, right? Were there any particular character moments like within kind of that that really stood out to you? When Brian is, you know, has has grown, you know, what's happened to me? What have I turned into? Yeah, right? we got to talk about that. And mm-hmm. the first, you know, she asks, she's worried that he's sick. And then she's worried, are you in pain? Right. And she's, you know, they have the, the panel of them from the side with Kurt sort of in between them, which, you know, that's a whole other thing. Right. And she's crying. I mean, she's concerned. She's concerned about him. I, I'm just thinking of how, you know, a few issues back when Brian was so upset and he and Kurt were arguing, you know, sort of fighting o- over her. Like, and that's how yeah, you know, yeah. Kurt broke his leg. Right. It's sort of this nice tender moment between the two of them. And yet you have Kurt who's on Megan's level. Right. And it's someone is playing is definitely playing games with us. It sort of rem- it just reminded me of how their relationship is not necessarily solid. Yeah, it's so hard because we see so much of the triangle kind of disappearing in the Davis run, like since that issue. And yet in theory, it should be hanging over everything because here's Kurt still with the like cane and the cast, which is the result of that. So, I mean, that should be a weight hanging over them all the time because the visible evidence, the consequences of that are omnipresent through that. And yet Mm -hmm. it hasn't been something that we've seen emphasized, but that framing there, I agree, is very interesting to say the least. The other one that that sort of stuck out to me was when Kylan was saying when they're splitting up and uh you know and Alistair wants to stay down stay down with all the robot bodies and he and Kylan is saying you know I too will remain with Widget I I owe him my life so cute it's um Kylan's built that moment up in his head a bit over the last you know 25 years or whatever however (laughs) long it's been for him I mean Widget did save you but it wasn't It's funny you know, it's so you knew him for an afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> so deeply dramatic. Yeah. He was com- yeah. my companion when I was alone, so now I will give him what little time is left before Necrom strikes. And of course, you know, the, the widget body is just sort of standing there not even looking at him, right? right. So I mean it's just it's kind of funny because it's it's loyalty, but at the same time, you know, they're just surrounded by all these other headless bodies. It's <laughs> Yeah, but, but again, also, it's a robot that you knew for an afternoon 25 right. years ago. It's not, to, you know, it's, this is not, you, you remember your girlfriend who was slaughtered in front of you? Yeah. Like, last week? Oh, <laughs> you know? poor Colin. Like, 
But like he doesn't like it's like no, I'm devoted to Widget. Oh, and robot. I did really want Kitty to smack down Farron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No points to Kurt for stopping that from happening. (laughs) Well, let's talk a little bit about the Brian thing. Uh, I'll bring you back into it, Andrew. See if you had any thoughts about it. I mean, uh, this is one of those things where I want to do more with it than I think the comic does because I would like to see Brian reflecting more on this very interesting transformation that he goes through because we've talked so much about his masculinity on the podcast and this is really interesting in theory in that context and yet we don't really get a lot of exploration about what that means to him. I mean, did you have thoughts about it at all, Andrew? Was this interesting? I mean, we're obviously going to get the payoff more in the next issue, but I mean, it was certainly, I thought the build-up was good, like in terms of the comedy of him running into everything and everything, but I mean, I don't know, did you want this to be more? Did it interest you? I'm on the same page as you are. I think it was a a very dynamic way to reveal it and to add a little bit of something else extra happening in the background, thus ramping up the tension even further. Brian's a scientist. He's going to notice if he's getting bigger a lot sooner smashing archways and stuff like that. So I think it was maybe a lost opportunity because we just did several issues about giving Brian um, a sense of dignity again. Yeah. Um, and I feel like you, you're walking him back a little bit here. And I don't think it helps that he looks kind of silly when so he's like silly. a giant muscle baby with a tiny head or something like that. So, so yeah, I, I think, I think it could have been handled a little bit better, but I said, I like what it was doing for the atmosphere of um, tension. I think maybe it would have been good to have that seated a little bit earlier, like to have this be a gradual thing yeah. that had been happening and for him to be sort of thinking about because i mean again the thing that i want to read too much into it is just his relationship to particularly toxic masculinity right and his discomfort with being this macho jock guy who is not a scientist he has to be captain britain and everything and how that's supposedly one of his conflicts so having him become an even more hulkish version of captain britain to the extent that he can't even use a computer anymore in theory that's an interesting character conflict but it's not really part of the story here that should be tragic for brian right Mm -hmm. His worst nightmare, really. Not able to even type the keys on the keyboard because he's he's too big. Uh, and as you said, it's not really explored. It's just kind of casually dropped. For sure. I don't know. Did you have thoughts about it, Mav? Yeah, they want the joke too much here. Um, they, yeah. I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. Davis wrote and drew it, so Davis wants the joke here too much. Yeah, it's funny that he bonks his head going through, but it doesn't just make Brian look stupid. And yeah, Brian's a scientist. Everyone else looks stupid. Oh, well, you know, that's odd. You bonked your head on the ceiling. Yeah, maybe they did lower the doorway it's like no there's six of you here you live here (laughs) (laughs) you know brian's going through puberty too here right you know Mm -hmm. and like when i when i see my niece who is you know 10 she's very clearly taller than she was a year ago and like i noticed that i'm like wow you're you're getting really big here Mm -hmm. and that's over the course of a year brian got a foot taller since breakfast (laughs) 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 like someone should pick that because it's not like like like, like even tall people, right? Tall people are not in danger of hitting their head on the doorway and he doesn't just barely no no well (laughs) he doesn't just barely nick it he chops he goes through six inches of door that's not a little bit like you would notice if you hit your head like if you i've I've dented archways and i've hit ceiling fans and yeah i definitely Uh noticed yeah you would you would be aware that hey this doorway didn't used to do this in my home that i've lived in for several years like it, it makes him look dumb and the fact that kurt and kitty and rachel and megan don't notice 
just make them look dumb. Yeah. You know, Kylan and Cerise met him yesterday, so fine. You yeah. know, but like his friends should be aware, and it's weird, and it's especially weird because he doesn't, like you said, he doesn't look like he has grown more masculine. He looks like someone, you know, put more air in the balloon. And yeah. <laughs> And that's funny. Davis has drawn the hawk in this issue. He doesn't have to draw him that way. He's chosen to. And and I, it's silly. It's funny. And given what the reason is, okay, sure, it, it, it is like someone has put more air in the balloon. So, you know, we'll find that out more next issue. So, it, like, I get the humor of it, but it is sort of thrown away a little easier than it should be. Like some of the other, this is an issue that's full of a lot of, of sight gags. And as much as I enjoy some of the other sight gags, Brian is auspicious one of the five main characters here so he he deserves more yeah i like i don't mind it as much as you do in the sense that i almost find it believable that they don't notice because they're so busy with other things and that kind of makes that point a little bit because it's not something that they have time to think about because they're thinking about the end of the world although when he like wrecks the computer keyboard or something that definitely is a moment where you think that they'd stop and talk about it but at the same time you're not going to just assume that Brian's getting bigger but yeah I mean if he got that much bigger they would notice I take your point yeah especially I mean Kitty's got to look up at him as someone who's short you know you're you're aware of how much you have to look up at someone and do you have to crane your head more I mean Mm -hmm. yeah maybe they live just they're so used to living in comic book world where people have variable heights depending on the artist that they just assume that well the artist changed so we didn't notice that he's being drawn bigger again Because again, like how tall how tall Kitty is is extremely variable depending mm-hmm. on the artist um, mm-hmm. during during this era. Because I think of Kitty as short, and officially she's not. Also, the fact that they're not paying attention is the fact that they don't necessarily pay attention to him that much. Yeah, yeah, yeah but it's yeah. a lot. It's, he's like a foot that. taller. <laughs> I mean, no, but that was that was yeah. part of how I read it too, Nicole. Yeah. That yeah. you know he isn't the center of everybody's thoughts most of the time because we've seen that as a through line in Excalibur. Yes, <laughs> I don't know. I would say that that's kind of true though. Like, I mean, even think back to like number forty-two with the thing that we talked about a lot in that episode. You know, about everybody's like, "Oh, let's have the technet move in," and Brian's like, "It's my house." Everyone's like, "We don't care what you think, Brian." <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like people don't care about him, which is kind of awful. But Megan does very much care about him. So, I mean, I'm overstating that. But I mean, because I, I did really love that line that Nicole highlighted as well, where she specifically asks if he's in pain. I thought that was a wonderful little nod to empathy being her superpower. Um, let's maybe move to some final thoughts, because there's lots of little moments from this that we didn't talk about, and we could have an opportunity to do that there. I don't know who wants to go first. I'll give it to you, Andrew. Uh, other things from this issue that we didn't get a chance to talk about? Uh, yes. Um, one of the things that I really wanted to flag, because I really liked it, is the relationship between Saturn and Roma as this sort of string pulling authority like that's that's very tropey but but having that authority have a complex dynamic in which you have this this seemingly innocent character thrust into the role of a trickster she's got a lieutenant who is um I don't know what we want to say sociopathic immoral um, <laughs> and they have a complex relationship but there seems to be a lot of trust there at least a lot of respect that's really cool like I don't need to see that play out I don't need to see that go anywhere or be resolved but just knowing that there's that level of like um internal intricacy I really like like that and i think that enriches the world dramatically hmm. um and if they wanted to do a spin-off series i would totally read it <laughs> 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, we just get a couple of pages of Otherworld in this issue, but they're very good pages in terms of just exactly what you said, and then just the texture of the space as well, the very magical sense that we have of it, that it has sort of a physical location, but also just these portals that she can reach her hand to and sort of stroke the texture mm. of the universe, just really beautiful. And the giant t- chessboard with all of the chrome <laughs> Excalibur pieces <laughs> was really, really nice as well. I want those. Well, that's just totally like Clash of the Titans, right? Clash yeah, Titans yeah, for sure. The clay figures. Absolutely. <laughs> um, Mav, final thoughts from this issue? Yeah, uh, page 22, par- panel four. Just There's a lot going on in this picture of Alistair in the mini worlds of oh, you know, yes. duplicates of, of Alistair. He's got like a Flash Gordon kind of scientist kind of self. He's got like a Sultan. He's a magician. He's a horribly scarred jigsaw type figure. And then he's a Roman toga kind of Halloween costume Oof, who yeah. very clearly has fabulous mascara. That's not <laughs> like there is a lot of attention to detail drawn on the eyelashes of <laughs> only one version of Alistair. Alistair there, which I think is fascinating look at, you know, gender fluidity that just kind of sneaks in there for one panel and let's not really talk about it ever again, you know, other than the fact that we've had other gender fluid kind of moments with Alistair throughout the book and they're never resolved. Like this never really comes up as like sort of a, a main issue in the comic. It's never written about by other authors or drawn by other artists. So I'm pretty sure it's something Davis is just doing for himself. Yeah, yeah I definitely got to that panel and I was like, like, I've never really been much of an Alistair fan, but I'm just like, hey, Alistair, <laughs> this, is, this is the fun look for you. I might have misjudged you all of this time. <laughs> Can we go to that dimension for a little while? <laughs> But yeah, I was very intrigued by that as well, because he has had some interesting sexy moments throughout the comic. And I mean, in terms of that gender fluidity stuff, it's almost like once you start interacting with Excalibur, you're going to have those kind of recognitions about yourself because it's a sex far space, which we haven't talked about in a while, but he gets swept <laughs> up in that very much so. Well, that and also, I mean, we don't see her as much, but, you know, there he has a... Yeah. I, and I realized I realize that with twins of opposite sexes, it should be always fraternal, but as Landy, Ali Sandy is she's very much an identical twin to him mm-hmm. other than the gender swap like the way they're drawn and we've talked about the fact that when they went to Crusader X's world where female Alistair that we met was unclear as to whether or not we were seeing Ali Sandy or we were seeing a female Alistair and there's and you know the flirt that Kurt was flirting with there's a lot that goes into the Alistair character that is sadly unresolved I mean like you know you, you said we could you could read a whole book about this I have so many questions you know just about the sex scene between him and Kyrie back on oh, I know. Back, back at the beginning of the cross time cra- caper there's there's lots lots of questions and this is just reminding me that I have questions and they're never he, going anywhere Alistair will always have the honor of having the most explicit sex scene in all of Excalibur and nobody can take that away from him <laughs> Um, oh yeah, I guess I can do final thoughts. I wanted to note the I mentioned it in my very like intro intro thing of like Kurt confronting his own skeleton. And it's just like I think it's the coloring of it that makes it so funny because he confronts the Megan skeleton and she's all like wizened and everything, and then he confronts his own skeleton and his hair still looks great. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen that image shared on like fan forums before and people are just like cracking up about it so like I had to mention it because I do find it very funny (laughs) it's just like I don't know I don't know whether it would be 
weird, like less weird if it had the white hair or not, but there's just something weird about that image. I don't know. <laughs> Those bodies aren't decomposing properly. Um, how about you, Nicole? Final thoughts from, from you about this issue? Anything we didn't get to that you would like to get to? I had a question. Of course. On the, and uh, I'm not sure which page it is. Maybe it's page 21. The one with the punish sore. And mm-hmm. um, in the second panel, you have the guy who's looking at the side of his eyes and he's eating a sandwich. Who is that? Is it Black Bolt? The, the Black Bolt. I, oh, is I, that I, who it is? Okay. I, it's cross time, right? So right, who knows? Right. But well, it, I know but it's, it's not an that's, usual member. I would yeah, think. that's not the that's not the way Black Bolt's antenna is usually drawn. But because there's an antenna on it with that kind of mask, I read it as a version of Black Bolt. Okay. But you would think if it's Black Bolt, there'd be like a sound joke in which there's not. So it is strange. Yeah. yeah. Well. But on the other hand, we had Adam Warlock for no apparent reason for one panel a couple pages ago. Like battling a vampire. vampire scroll. (laughs) Yeah. I have to say, I mean, the whole bringing in the, you know, at the end, Merlin is, um, he, he does look de- delightfully evil. And um, I'm intrigued by the various versions of Merlin that we get, you know, throughout comics and, and film and, you know, sort of pop culture. So I honestly don't remember what happens after this. So now I feel like I have to go read the next one because... <laughs> Ooh, Nicole, the next one. I don't one. remember really what this version of Merlin does. So, the next one is the Mega Size Number Fifty Special. You're gonna want to check that one out. Some good mm. stuff. I usually do a letter from the Sword Strokes Letters page, and there isn't one that I'm super desperate to spotlight. I guess the only one that I'll spotlight really briefly is this letter from Jonathan Briggs, um, asking about what is Nightcrawler's connection to Mystique of Freedom Force. Remember when Mystique was a member of Freedom Force? Are they related? I heard that there was going to be a book a shelf about it but i guess not (laughs) and terry gavino says nightcrawler's connection to mystique has not yet been revealed guess you'll just have to keep reading that really truly was one of the longest dangling plot threads in x-men comics and it would still be a while before we get it fully elucidated i don't even remember who eventually decides it's like fine they're i mean mother and son it's fine whatever (laughs) it's one of those things that was clear for so long and took so long for them to get around to actually doing it yeah it might not even have been till Age of Apocalypse before they eventually said it for sure. I don't remember exactly when it's, oh, well, when it's, it's in, finally... It's in X-Men Unlimited that it happens, which is when they where they shunt like, all of the unresolved plot threads. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah I, I know it does come up eventually, but when, uh, by eventually, I mean at least 15 years after the first time it was brought up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it happens in X-Men Unlimited Volume 1, number 4, from 1994. So just a f- couple of years from now, um, it'll get figured out. That would be the issue in which we get Mystique throwing baby Nightcrawler over a waterfall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, so cartoonishly oh, yeah. evil that there's not much else you can do besides laugh about it. Well, I would also spotlight a letter um, in the Yeah, thing, absolutely. In, in the Go for well. it. I just want to look at Jonathan Briggs, who, uh, in his letter, he talks about, um, same thing, he's spotlighting the same letter, because he talks about the Freedom Force thing, and then he also talks about um, have the X-Men in, blah, 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 blah. And then he's also, on a scale of five X's, this book gets a four X's. Thanks for making my dollar seventy five worth it. Uh dollar seventy five. That's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And this was an expensive comic. This was prestige I format. <laughs> I know. I miss those days. My pride broke it. My rage broke it. This excellent knight who fought with fairness and grace. 
was meant to win. I used Excalibur to change that verdict. I've lost, for all time, the ancient sword of my fathers, whose power was meant to unite all men, not to serve the vanity of a single man. So we will wrap things up there. Um, Nicole, thank you ever so much for joining us. It's been absolutely delightful as I knew it would be. Before we go, if you would like people to find you online, where can they find you? And is there any writing or projects or anything else that you would like our lovely listeners to be aware of? You can follow me on Twitter. It's just N Prime uh, on Twitter. I'm not that entertaining, but you know, <laughs> uh, it's there. Uh, probably going to be contributing another article, to, uh, book on Batman. That's ooh. that'll be coming out. Yeah. In, in me too. I, mean, <laughs> I said, ooh, like that's a, like I thought I didn't know that. Which, like, which I, one are I'm you doing, Mav? I'm doing uh, Catwoman and Batman's wedding or oh, not wedding. Yeah, I, I'm not surprised. Okay, yeah. so. Um, uh, other than that, I have uh, I do have a blog that I uh, that I put around with once in a while. I keep threatening to bring it back, and if I do, you'll see it on my page. So, okay. And thank you for having me. This has been so much fun. Yeah, and we'll highlight some of your book chapters and stuff in our show notes, Nicole. But if there's anything you want to particularly show, she's on my show a lot. She's on my other show a lot. The place you can find me is uh, is when I can finagle my way onto the uh, Vox podcast. I'm in there. So. Yeah, she's frequently on on the other show. So. Nancy Drew, oh, we did Nancy Drew recently. The Nancy Drew episode is very good. Oh, you were in the Nancy Drew episode. Oh, yeah, I haven't listened to that, but Mav's been such a cheerleader of that show. I, I should get your opinions on it. Yeah, yes, for well, for listeners of this show, because I don't mention it here as much, people have been very happy about our Nancy. I've gotten some some nice feedback about people oh, are like, this is great. Um, the Nancy Drew episode is awesome, and we learn a lot about the current television show and also just i did some extensive research into the history of nancy drew so there's mm -hmm. a lot to, there, there's a lot to learn it's very fascinating yep. awesome i'll link that podcast on our website um thank you so 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 much again nicole it's been great next in one week's time we will be discussing the mega-sized excalibur number 50 winner loses all in which lots of stuff happens too much to summarize here don't want to spoil it we'll just have to talk about it next week <laughs> in the meantime if you liked what you heard please follow us like and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it don't forget to check out our fabulous youtube videos which we've done for several of our episodes which you can find via our website or the vox podcast youtube channel as always if you want to chat with us about excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest or a future episode let us know you can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via twitter at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you andrew and mav for another chaotic conversation thank you nicole for helping us make it bigger thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thoughtform music for our truly epic theme song play us out we have completed recording